Thank you, Terry. Open your Bibles with you this morning, if you would. Ephesians chapter 4. You can see we're talking about a scary church. Now, how can a church be scary? Well, I can think of a lot of ways that we're not going to talk about. But I think one of the ways that a church can be scary is when a church doesn't do its job correctly and leaves people to kind of fend for themselves. And I think you see that a lot in our culture where there are churches that mean well and a lot of pastors that mean well, but a lot of times what they're doing is creating a group of Christians that really aren't very effective. And they're, not, they're devoted to their vision of Jesus, but it may not be a very biblical vision. So for the next several weeks, we'll be talking about that. How can a church be scary? How can it produce Christians that really aren't very Christian? Because you know there are those kinds of people. If you're like me, you watch TV and see people in the movies and things like that. And there are images of Christians that are portrayed that sometimes aren't very good. Sometimes it's movies and they're biased, but a lot of times it's real Christians. And there are people out there that are Christian, they follow Jesus, but they haven't been trained or they haven't picked up on some subtleties of Christian faith. And we're gonna talk about some of that for the next two or three weeks. And we'll begin by looking at Ephesians chapter four. Now, one other thing before I get started, I'm trying to experiment with how to wear this microphone without getting the creaks. And you know what I'm talking about, how I talk and it cracks and pops. So I'm going to try something different today. And if it cracks and pops, I'll try something different next week. So I'm going to try to get it where I don't annoy you when I talk. I mean, it's one thing to be offensive for Jesus. It's another thing to just be offensive. So I'm going to try not to be just offensive, okay? So if it pops and cracks, I'll try something different next week. As always, we begin with prayer. I'll give you a chance to pray silently where you're seated. And then I'll finish and we'll look at this passage together. Will you bow with me, please? Father, again, we thank you this morning for your presence, for all that you've done for us, this great nation, full bellies, warm beds, safe homes. Father, we thank you. We recognize your generosity, the fact that we have more than almost everyone that has ever lived. Thank you. Give it a spirit of Graciousness, Father, help us to recognize what is gift and be thankful. Help us to resist that tendency to take it for granted. Help us to always remember that what we have can be taken away or lost. We pray, Father, that we might live in a way that would lead to your blessings. We pray, Father, for faith, for the ability to believe in you and your word, even when it may not make sense or the culture doesn't adhere to it. We pray this morning, Father, for those in elected positions, those in positions of power. We pray for their wisdom and guidance. We pray for discernment, Father, as there are various court cases going along in an upcoming election. We pray that you would guide us and direct us, help us to exercise our freedoms responsibly. We pray for our first responders and their families, keep them safe. Use them to save lives, comfort their families. And of course, Father, we pray for our soldiers all over the world. 
pray for peace in Israel and Palestine and Gaza, Syria, Africa, Ukraine. Help us, Father. For some reason, it's easier to fight than to get along. We ask for mercy and guidance and a spirit of peace. As always, Father, help us to be the church that you want us to be. Help us to be the individual follower of Christ that you want us to be. Help us to submit ourselves to your leadership, to hear your word, to allow it to nurture us and sustain us. Help us to be submissive to your spirit. Again, Father, thank you for this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have an opportunity to talk to a lot of young mamas and daddies just because of the childcare experience and all those things I talk about often. They're kind of my window to the world. In a recent conversation with a young mama, she was telling me how she wants her kids to grow up and be smart and good readers and all those kinds of things, which is kind of a, a recurring theme with young parents. They want, they want to do the right thing about, by their kids. They want to train their kids upright and all those kinds of things. She wasn't really looking to be a good Christian or anything like that. She didn't bring that up. But she said she wanted her kids to learn to, to read and be good students and do something with their lives. I said, well, that's good. I said, do you read with them? She goes, well, no. I said, well, do you have a lot of books laying around the house in different places? Do you take them to the library and those kinds of things? She goes, well, no. Why would I do that? I said, well, and I, and I, I try not to be critical because they're not looking for that. And if I shoot them down, they're not going to talk to me again. So I said, well, you know, my grandkids are learning to read in there. And my daughters do this really good thing. They just pile books around the house. And you go to the house, and wherever there are, there's a pile of books of appropriate levels of readership and those kinds of things. I said, then one of the things they do is they sit down with their kids, and they read every night. And at least several nights a week, they get down, and they just take turns reading. And then the adult reads, sometimes long passages out of different books and even the Bible. And I could tell by the look on her face that she was not hearing what she wanted to hear. I said, well, you don't do those things? She goes, no, I don't have time for that. And I said, well, you told me you want your kids to read and be good students and, and grow up and turn out right. What, what do you do in terms of educating? Said, well, I take them to school and I make sure they have clothes and food in their bellies and those kinds of things. I said, okay. So what else do you do? She goes, well, we all, they all have their iPads and they have educational games on those things and they really like them. And I think that's enough. And I, I restrained myself. And I said, well, simply, uh, well, that helps. And some of those games are good, and I'm not against using an iPad or a computer. I said, but really, if you ask me, since you did, if you really want to help your kids, read with them. Just spend some time and read to them and read age-appropriate books and then read long passages out of Scripture, maybe, or something else. and Just have them listen to you reading good stories. And she said, well, thanks for your time. And we walked away, friends. I didn't want to tell her that she was failing her children because she's a good mama. I mean, she loves her babies, and I've seen her interact with her kids, and she's nice to them. She doesn't rag on them or anything. She doesn't hit them or anything like that. But she does ignore them at home. Again, no abuse, no, not necessarily any neglect, anything like that. But they're on their own. Now, she's purchased them an iPad at several hundred dollars per kid. And she's made sure that there are games on there they can play and keep them quiet. And some of them may be even educational games, but she's really not doing the job, is she? Because those kids need to be nurtured, 
Not only do they need to be taught how to read, they need to be taught what to read. They need to be taught how to interpret what they read. They need to hear stories and then learn how to glean something from those stories. Because like you know, a lot of stories out of history, a lot of children's stories, there's a moral to it. And the kids won't always pick up on it. Sometimes they will, but a lot of times they just need help. That's what good parents do. And again, she's not a bad parent, but in that area, she's, she's kind of failing her kids. And I'm afraid they'll find out later. So I start thinking about that because she is a good gal, good parent. And then I thought of this good parent, Father God. Is Father God a good parent? He provides for our needs, yes. He makes sure we have food. We thank him every week for food, clothing, this culture, this world, those kinds of things. Does he do any more or does he just leave it to ourselves? Well, what we're going to do today is read a passage of scripture where Paul explains that Father God has provided for the nurture of the childhood spirit. And that's us. We are the childhood. We're children of God. And God steps up as Father to teach us, not just to read, but how to learn and how to be shaped. Follow along with me if you would in Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul explains some of the things that God has done. Verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are to be no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So one of the things we can learn from this is that when we work with God to nurture and enhance our faith, in other words, when we submit to his leadership and we take advantage of the opportunities given us, then he can grow us up. He's, he can use us. And through that use, he blesses us. Everybody here says, I hope God blesses me. We pray for God's blessings, and I think that's okay. It seems selfish, but we do it a lot. There's nothing wrong with asking for your blessings. We ask for God's blessings on our children and grandchildren. I ask for God's blessings for you. When some of these daycare mamas and daddies, obviously struggling, pull away from childcare in the morning, I say a silent prayer for them. I know a lot of them are struggling with their marriage, struggling with their children, some of them struggling to stay alive, literally. And so I often pray for them, just a quick prayer as they go out. God, will you bless them? And I think that's all right. But I think sometimes we need to do more than just ask for blessings. We need to ask, well, what has God done to make blessings a possibility? And am I just supposed to walk around asking to be blessed and hope that he does it? Or is it something I can do that will make his blessings more probable? 
And I think it's probably where we need to land in asking, what can I do that would not get in God's way? Because if you're like me, sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Just like a child who doesn't want to learn to read and just wants to play outside, he's his own worst enemy. And sometimes what you have to do as a parent or grandparent is pull him in outside and put him out in front of a book and read to him because there are some things they just need and they're not going to get it from doing just what they want. And so God has to do that with us and does something that is more than just what we want. So look at verse 11 again. And you can see some of the things he's done. And I'll read this verse again. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So what is here is Paul's list of some of the things that God has done to enable you to be someone he can bless. Now he wants to bless you, but he knows from human nature that he created that typically if you just give people something for nothing and there are no requirements, that you take advantage of it and begin to ignore it. You give kids candy every night for good behavior, that's one thing, but eventually they'll just expect candy whether they're in good behavior or not, right? And I talk to the parents about those, those kinds of things every day. And so what we want to do is see what has God provided for us. And here's a list. Apostles and prophets. We tend to think of apostles as old-timey preachers with some kind of special gifts. And there is the gift of apostleship and the gift of prophecy. And typically what this was were wise men, sometimes women, who had the Spirit of God strong within them. And they would enable Christians to correctly interpret history. Now you're thinking, what does that mean? What that means is read history, not necessarily just the books, but watch what happens. And how do you correctly interpret what is happening? And you know, sometimes you look at history and you can come up with a conclusion and it be way off base until you learn later what's going on. And so what prophets and apostles often do is help you to correctly interpret your historical situation, your life, and see if God is blessing you or you are missing out on something like that. So if you're doing something with your kids and uh, you love your kids and you're giving them everything they want and they're turning into spoiled brats, what someone with, who has the gift of prophecy or an apostle would be able to say in a sermon, if you give your kid everything you want with no, with no requirements, you're going to turn out spoiled brats. And hopefully, in that sermon, in that way of talking, somebody will hear, well, my kid's not a spoiled brat because they're just a crummy kid. My kid's a spoiled brat because I'm failing as parent. See how that works? And so an apostle or a prophet can help you to see the error of your ways or maybe see that what you're doing is, is correct. And they can do that in a lot of ways. And sometimes preachers do a good job of this. And in the Old Testament, we see an example of this over and over. When the people would live in sin and reject God's leadership, and they would do this for decades, prophets, and not apostles, but they would call them prophets in the Old Testament, they would preach, listen, if you don't watch yourself and turn away from your wicked ways, God's going to punish you. And then sometimes that very thing would happen. It might take years because of God's patience. But eventually there would be a war or a battle or an invasion or a plague or something like that. And then people would imagine, okay, this is what the prophet meant. If I ignore God, something bad is going to happen. Or God may cause something to happen to correct me. And that was the way that God worked in the Old Testament. Flash forward to the New Testament and now... 
we don't necessarily think of punishment. At the same time, we can look at lives and the way they turn out and ask ourselves, is this something that is a blessing of God or is something else going on? A prophet or an apostle will help you to discern what's going on in your life and sometimes give you the correct interpretation. I wish I could say that our culture was good with this, but we pretty well play games with God, and you know that. We watch preachers on TV do all sorts of goofy things, and sometimes even news people get into this, and they make these conclusions based on something, and it doesn't seem quite right, and sometimes, sometimes they're missing out. So you got to pay attention. You have to think and test your conclusions against Scripture. Evangelists is just what we think of. Evangelists are people who have a gift for leading people to Jesus. Now, that's not something that everybody can do. Excuse me. Every preacher is to do the work of an evangelist, share their faith, try to lead people to Jesus and those kinds of things. However, I've noticed over the years that some preachers are better at that particular part of ministry than others. I'm not very good at it. I can tell people about Jesus, I get the message across, and they go, that's night preacher, thank you. And they'll walk away. But I have a good friend, and he has the gift of evangelism. He's one of the few that I've ever met that really has the gift of evangelism. And uh, on one trip, he had gotten off in an airport, and he had to make a trip to get where he was going. And he got called and got an Uber, you know, one of those cars that you call, and they come and pick him up. And he had about a 30-minute ride with this Uber driver, who was just a young kid. And in that 30 minutes, he took a kid who had never heard the gospel, and just talked to him very graciously and very kindly, and was so enthralled with this message of Jesus that when he left my friend out at the church to go speak, he parked his car and went in with him. And he spent the day with this guy. And he took him home that night, and that night he received Jesus at my friend's invitation. See, that's the gift of evangelism. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody knows how to do that. It's a gift from God's Spirit. Well, God has given people that gift of evangelism because the church needs it. The church needs to see that at work. For some reason, not all pastors are very good at it. In fact, most aren't. But usually in the congregation, there's someone with the gift of evangelism. And so God does that. One other thing. Excuse me. <laughs> there are pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers are a conglomeration of gifts. Pastors are those people that like to get into people's lives and love on them and correct them and do those kinds of things. Sometimes they're very good at certain things. Sometimes they're good at only two or three things. But there are pastors out there who do a good job and they pastor the church and the churches do well and they lead in a good way and they're gracious and kind to people. And then there are teachers. You and I know that not everybody, not every teacher is a good teacher. I had teachers in school that were wonderful teachers. You know the type. They were interesting and made me want to read, made me want to learn, and gave me grades that I deserved, not that I wanted. And I can prove it, but I'm not going to show you my transcript. But those were good teachers. And then there are teachers that put you to sleep. 
And those aren't the good ones. And you and I know that there are teachers that are good ones and teachers that are bad ones. It's just the way it is. But in the church, there are teachers. Some of them are wonderful. I had a teacher when I was growing up, Jim Barry. He's dead now. The reason, <laughs> he was a good guy. He was the only man who would take my class. I was a third grader. Jim was my teacher from third grade into seventh grade because he was the only guy who would take my class. Now, I wasn't the problem, I'm sure. But there were several of us boys. There were no girls in the class. They probably couldn't tolerate us. And we were a handful. And Jim was one of the most boring individuals you ever heard. But you know what Jim did? He taught us a Bible study every week. He ignored us for the most part because he had to to get a word out. And he was consistent and gracious and kind with us. Never yelled at us, told us we need to settle down and did all those things. But he changed my life. And there was, I, I don't ever remember a hug. But he was a consistent Bible-based teacher, Jim Barry. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, God. You see, people like that, and every one of you can think of someone like that. Those are placed by God for your benefit, for your blessing. So when I talk about what parents need to do to invest their lives to help their children, I'm talking about the way God works with his children, that's us. How you get involved in your people's lives, how God gets involved in people's lives, how he creates this structure, this thing we call the church, and he places people with certain gifts in there, and they are made for your blessing. And he doesn't make you do anything. If you want to sit there and look at your phone, and you can do that, you can ignore everything. If you want to sit there and think about what's for lunch and not worry about what the preacher's droning on about, you can do that. And so can your kids and grandkids. You've, we've all done that. Or, if you so choose, you can allow God to teach you. And amazingly enough, the church has been pretty good historically. In fact, as you know this, I said this, but you educators should appreciate this. The largest functioning educational institution on the planet is the church. Every country, every continent has a church. Sometimes they're public and they're well-known and very, you know, very well-money like in America. Sometimes they're private and against the law. And yet the church survives. There's a lot of negative stuff in the news today about how the church in America is dying. Don't believe it for a minute. I think the kind of church you're used to is going to die in this culture. It's changing, but the church will always be there. It may not be as popular, it may not be as moneyed, it may not make as much impact in terms of public announcements and things like that. There may come a time when preachers don't make it on the TV. That might be a good thing. But there will always be a church. You see, because it's an act of God. God loves his kids. That's us. He is a father that teaches us and provides for us. And so he provides a church. And, and when we work with him and we allow him to teach us and to bless us, guess what? We grow. And we begin to share our faith with others. And we will build a building perhaps and get some programs going, ministries and things like that. And this church and other churches are a testimony of the way God works and intends to work. The church in its forms will come and go. 
Used to, there were grand cathedrals all over Europe, and those are fading. For now, there are big TV prominent churches in America. Those will probably fade too. But God continues to work with his people. And as long as there are his people, he will provide for his children. And that's the way God works. And so that's when a church is healthy and strong. Now, unfortunately, sometimes a church isn't doing very well. And that's when a church can be dangerous and scary. And on screen is this idea that when our faith is weak, we tend to drift away from God and his ministries. And this is when the church doesn't do its job. When our faith is weak, we tend to drift away from God and his ministries. Now, strangely enough, that doesn't mean we quit going to church. There are Christians all over the world that go to church, have zero interest in following Jesus. And you're saying, why would they go to church if they're not really into Jesus? Well, you go to church for a lot of reasons. There are some legitimate reasons to go to church. It's good for your faith. It's good for you. It's good for your family, etc. Those are all right. There are other reasons. Because your wife makes you. Because you feel like you should. Because there are political reasons to be connected with those in church. And, and in Excelsior Springs, my in-laws lived across from a man who was a state representative. Never went to church unless there was an election coming up. And he was there every Sunday during those months. Had no use for Jesus. Good guy. But didn't care. Until it counted on the ballots. Everybody knows those kinds of people. A scary church is a church that doesn't do anything about that kind of thing. A scary church is a church that doesn't really challenge its people. A scary church is kind of like that young mama I was talking about. Loves her babies, but doesn't want to be bothered. Is concerned for them, wants them to grow and mature and be well-read and all those kinds of things, but is not willing to put out any effort into it. That's kind of a scary parent, isn't it? Think about this. If mom and dad don't teach a child what to read or what books they can read and look at, and if they don't supervise those children's programs on your iPad and computer, and you let them do whatever they want, what do you think they're going to turn to? Wholesome activities? Don't kid yourself. They won't. scary church churches members. So on screen are some of the things that happen. These come out of verse 14. Look at that passage if you would. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So in verse 14, he talks about things that can happen when Christians reject or do not take advantage of what God has offered. It leaves them susceptible to the world, tossed here and there by waves. In other words, what that means is cultures come and go and trends come and go. And if the church hasn't taught its people, they will be subject to those cultural trends. Because you know and I know this, what the culture tells us to do is very powerful. The power of the influence of others, the power of a media presentation, the power of music, the power of what some talking head says on TV. Those are all very powerful. And they teach us how to live. And if your children and grandchildren aren't taught something different, they'll be products of our culture. So look at our culture. Rampant sexuality. 
an incredible tendency towards self-destruction, alcohol and drug abuse, those kinds of things, a sexuality that is out of control. That's our culture, people. And if the church doesn't do its job and teach its membership and children the right way to live, they'll just be part of our culture. And you see that every day, don't you? You see it in some of your grandchildren's lives because they haven't been taught or mom and dad are afraid to teach them. One of the things I remember, and, and I have to acknowledge I am old, okay? I turned 66 a few weeks ago, and I am old, and I know this. And back in my day, if you hit mom in the face, that was a disaster. And my dad was big and loud, 6'3", 275 pounds. And if we hit mom in the face one time, we got a lesson we would never forget from her and dad when he got home. And we didn't do it very often. Fact is, I never did it because I was number five and I saw what happened with four other kids. My little sister never learned it though. But anyway, I see kids slapping their mama in the face every morning every morning. Experts say you should talk to them and explain that hurts mommy's feelings. And I have observed that they don't particularly care if it hurts mama's feelings. They need more. They need some instruction. I'm not saying they need physical violence, but they need more than that. They need more than just a casual timeout. They need to be instructed. Because you know what happens to kids that hit their mamas in the face? They turn into bigger kids that hit their mamas in the face. And then they turn into kids who are going to hit other people, and so on and so forth. And you know that. This is just the way it is. Our cultural trend is to fail our children. And that's part of what's going on in our culture. And I don't have to be a prophet of doom. You know this. There are things in our culture that are failing. We are losing some things. And the church isn't challenging those cultural norms. And again, I'm not ragging on anybody. It's kind of interesting now. This is no alcohol January. Do you know that? All across the culture, all the cool kids, meaning the people in front of a camera all the time, all the influencers, they're giving up alcohol for a month and it's killing them. Oh my gosh, it's just horrible. Now, I'm a teetotaler from way back. And yes, it's partly because I'm afraid of my dad, even though he's been dead 10 years and those kinds of things. But that's just not a part of my life. So I think, well, what's the big deal? Well, amazingly, it is a big deal. To a one... These people that give up alcohol for a month say, I feel better. I'm more alert. Some of them say they sleep better. Who knew? They all talk about how much money they're saving. And they even lose weight. I don't think the church needs to be a bastion of teetotalism, if that's a word. But we need to talk about self-restraint, don't we? But how you need to be real careful how you use some of these things that are common in our culture. Still... In movies and TVs, when it's the end of a long day, people grab a bottle of whiskey and toke up and tip it up. And, and that's the norm. Now, I don't know that it is the norm, but that's what's portrayed in movies. Particularly if you watch old movies, isn't it? That was the way the culture taught. And again, I'm not criticizing people who have an occasional drink. I, I, that's not a big deal to me. But you need to be careful. And it's interesting, I think, that the cool kids are beginning to find out that if they can get that under control, their lives will be better. The church should be teaching that rather than not talking about it anymore. The same with all these other things that are so cool in our culture. Gosh, 
You know, because you don't want to be that church that's just against everything. But still, people need to hear something, don't they? Instead of just waiting for a Surgeon General to tell you something. So we have to be consistent and challenge our culture. Another thing, it fails to give people a foundation. When the church fails in its teaching capacity, it gives people a foundation that's a little bit scary. For instance, I, I like to watch TV preachers occasionally, not because I like it, because they entertain me. They're oftentimes unrealistic in talking about what you will get if you follow Jesus. Everything will be great. God will bless you. You'll have everything, the desires of your heart and things like that. And I want to preach that. But sometimes life isn't like that and you know that. If people have this idea that if they go to church and give an offering and buy a piece of cloth or a special book or something, if they're taught that if they do that, their life will be perfect, they're being lied to. And so when something happens and their life isn't perfect, guess what happens? They fall away because they're scared and God has failed them. And you will hear people say things like that. So what, I have to have, what they have to be taught is that the goal is follow Jesus in spite of circumstances. Be loyalty to God because of his character and of the salvation within you. In spite of what you get. Give to support the, weak, the ministries of the church and, and give sacrificially sometimes. That's a thing. In spite of how you feel. Because that's biblical teaching. And that way what happens is, even when you're not a part of much, you're a part of something. So people need a good foundation. And finally, it fails to teach people against false teachers. There are false teachers every day in our culture. Sometimes they're politicians. Sometimes they're media wags. Sometimes they have talk shows. And a lot of the stuff that goes for truth on talk shows is just false prophecy. And you know that. And they tell you things and it's just not true. And they're not bad people. and not horrible people. But what they're saying just isn't true. And what we have to do is learn to discern between people who are talking for a job and, and people who are legitimate. And I'm kind of being vague here because it's difficult for me to discern sometimes one particular person and then point them out because I tend to not want to do that. I'm not here to rag on any particular individual. This is up to you. This is where you have to listen to scripture. This is where you, you're supposed to pay attention when I talk. And I know that's hard sometimes. And particularly when it's almost time for me to stop because you're hungry. And you have to learn to think for yourself and be discerning. And a good church will not teach you how to think. Well, I mean, not what to think, but he will teach you how to think. So that's one of our goals here, to teach you read scripture, apply those eternal principles, and so you can think for yourself. Now, if you want an opinion, I've got one. If you want to come up and ask me about a certain practice or a certain TV show, I'll give you my opinion, but it's not necessarily the word of God. So what you have to do is think for yourself. <laughs> I'll close with this. I watch this show a lot just because we have air TV, which means we can't get anything out where we live, which isn't as bad as you think. So we're watching these endless reruns of a particular show. Uh, Bones is the show. Some of you are familiar with it. Good show. 
Anyway, the focus of the story is, is that this brilliant woman is kind of, kind of based on true story. A lot of imagination there. But anyway, she's brilliant. She's a savant. And she is a cultural anthropologist. And she knows nothing about how to get along with people. I mean, and that's the focus of the story. And it's hilarious because she does a great job of it. And she knows everything about being a scientist and nothing about being a human being. And it makes some really funny conversations. So anyway, as the show goes on, she got married to somebody in the show. And they had babies. And then they started having these tussles because she married a staunch Catholic man. And this is in the movie, of course. So she has this perspective that is based on her scientific studies and he has a perspective based on Catholic teachings. It's pretty interesting. So the other night there was this episode where they have this five-year-old child, well she's probably four, and she's brilliant like her mama and she started cussing and dad is throwing a fit. You can't say that. And she says, why not? It's normal for people to use curse words. And she was okay with that. And then she introduced the concept of gateway cursing. Gateway cursing is when you, and this is a thing, gateway cursing is when you use curse words that aren't real bad, they're just kind of bad. Follow? And so the child is gateway cursing. And so, at the end of the show, and they've been going through this, going fussing all through the show, and the little girl jumps up in mama's arms and she says, Mama, you're a jackass. Yeah, right on TV in front of God and everybody. And she said, what did you say? And dad said, yeah, what did you say? And they had this long conversation about gateway cursing. And the end, uh, end line was the super critical husband here, staunch Catholic who doesn't believe in this gateway cursing, says, okay, mom, tell us what gateway cursing is, why it's okay for your daughter to do it. And she had this blank look on her face because obviously she was wrong. So I take that just to remind you that sometimes what is portrayed on TV is acceptable to the world, but it's not acceptable for Christians. Gateway cursing and whatever. And again, I'm not ragging on people for having an occasional stumble, things like that. But there is something to purity of speech, isn't there? Sure. There's a something to self-restraint. There's, there's something about controlling your behavior, controlling your mouth, and making sure that when you speak, it's something that's not going to be critical or vile or foul. See, God has provided for that. There are apostles and prophets. There are pastors and teachers. There are others that God has placed for us. And when you and I allow God to teach us, and when we follow his example and teach those around us, then we can produce the kind of lives that God can use. God can use anybody, that's true. But it's easier for him to use somebody and to bless somebody that follows him faithfully. So this whole idea of a scary church is a church that fails. They can be nice people. They can sing nice songs, have good music. The preacher can even be a pretty good guy. But they fail to teach. So I guess this is a call for a church to be a little bit scarier in a different way. Because a scary church that does nothing can destroy us. Stay tuned for next week. We'll talk about a scary church in a different way. Oh, why don't you stand up with me? Nate's going to come and lead us in a closing prayer, in a, a closing song. And as he does this, let me encourage you to consider how God might work in your life 
what he might be wanting to do with you and how he might teach you to be his person. Nate? Just a moment, I'm going to introduce you to a young couple that's come to join our fellowship. And I don't have their names. They're writing those down, so there's pressure here to get them right. Uh, something to remember that this is a new year, so there are some things that you can look at. Uh, am, you know, am I going to serve Christ this year? I hope you will. Okay, are there neighbors that I can invite to church? I hope you think about that. And how can I be someone that God can use? How can I allow him to bless me? Why don't you two come stand up here, if you would. This is Keith and Linda Clements, and you come from what church? Um, originally, we were from a Spirit Life Church, but we're coming on Statement of Faith. Okay. So you're followers of Jesus, baptized and all that. Yeah. I've talked to them, so I know this. Well, we're glad you're here. If you would affirm them in receiving them as a member, would you raise your right hand and say amen? Amen. And you're in. Okay, and we expect to grow in the faith with you, all right? So when the services are over, after Terry leaves in a closing prayer, come and welcome them into our fellowship. We're glad your guys are here, all right? Pray with me, please. And now unto him who's able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the throne of God with exceeding joy. To him be power and majesty and glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> 